0: West Legal Ed Center and Celeste welcome you to Decrypting Recovery of Cryptocurrencies 101. Use the participation tab at the bottom of your screen to send a question to the presenter. Program materials can be found under your supplements tab. It's my pleasure to introduce our program speakers today, Daniel Coyle and Amardeep Tandi. I'll turn the floor over to them now for further introductions. Hello and welcome. I'm Daniel Coyle, an attorney at SICOR Law, specializing in creditors' rights and asset recovery. I represent creditors of all kinds in pursuit of assets to satisfy debts of all natures, whether the debt is secured, unsecured, reduced to judgment or not. My practice has a heavy emphasis in international asset recovery, including cross-border insolvency and representing foreign trustees and aggregate creditor bodies. My email, which will be provided as well after the presentation is decoyle at secorlaw.com and my website is www.secorlaw.com. I am joined today by Deep Thandi.
1: Thanks, Dan. Hello and good afternoon, everyone. My name is Amardeep Thandi and I work in Control Risks, a specialized global risk consultancy practice which provides supportive services in cyber forensics, e-discovery, business intelligence and asset tracing to name a few. I lead our global blockchain and cryptocurrency initiative at Control Risks um, and my background really stems from digital forensics and e-discovery. I've spent the last decade providing strategic consultancy, specifically supporting FS clients in responding to regulatory enforcement actions and investigations. One of my responsibilities at the firm is to explore, develop and embed new workflows using emerging technologies such as AI into investigations. And this is where my interest in blockchain comes in. Just before I begin, I just want to apologize in advance. Um, We will be covering a lot of technical um, acronyms um, and tongue twisters. Um, So apologies in advance. um, And we hope to have a smooth run here. Um, But it's no surprise, really, that the amount of crypto and blockchain related legal work is on the rise. Um, And I think it's a combination of a few things. New complex technology, the unforgiving nature of the crypto world, and the recent developments in both legal and forensic aspects that has created almost this perfect storm, as it were. With a heightened global financial instability and looming inflation, even institutional investments are on the rise causing brand new all-time highs in prices and adoption. And as a result, we think it's really important to not only understand the underlying technology um, and the currencies involved, but also the legal and forensic developments, which allow new ways to support our clients on different matters involving blockchain or crypto, specifically in this instance, asset recovery. So today we will be taking you through a brief history of crypto, demystifying blockchain, I promise to keep this at a light touch blockchain applications terminology and notable cases tracing capabilities and also recent developments before ending with some trends uh, and predictions so to kick off cryptocurrency really was born out of a group of individuals dubbed the cypherpunks um, and and they really had a distrust of banks uh, and the government they believed in, in kind of a dystopian future um, and we're quite paranoid about the government's ability to snoop on all information pertaining to an individual. And so they began to, to really research cryptography uh, and cryptographic techniques um, and, and show to introduce really an anonymity into everyday personal transactions. So we're currently on page two um, if, if you're clicking through the material. Um so these these individuals also wanted to cut out the middlemen and, and introduce peer to peer banking through the use of cryptography. Um and, and they were there were actually multiple attempts to create a digital currency. Um but it only really gained traction in the light of the financial crash in two thousand and eight, where there was the peak of distrust in the government and financial institutions. And this made a decentralized digital currency a lot more appealing. And then in 2009 uh, was was um, where Bitcoin um, really took off and it was on rise. Um, and still to this day, no one really knows um, who is truly behind its creation. A more recent example um, that we've seen kind of today um, of individuals going against traditional finance um is with GameStop, which I'm sure that you're all aware of or have seen it in the in the papers. Um, And this is a case of people rallying together to highlight the lack of fairness of financial markets, such as uh, in this case in in Wall Street and the shorting of of certain stocks and shares. So we've talked about kind of Bitcoin, how it emerged. um, And then really what I want to do is now transition into slide three, where we're going to discuss about um the future developments and, and, and where Bitcoin went beyond um, the emergence in 2009. So um, as really Bitcoin gained momentum um, from 2009, people identified the benefits and the underlying technology became the driving force really for competing cryptocurrencies to emerge from 2011. Um, and this really gave rise to the to the, um, the ICO boom of 2017. Um, which really is the crypto equivalent of the dot-com boom, littered with opportunists looking for illicit financial gains alongside genuine companies trying to make a change in the industry and in the space. Um, It's worth noting, um, you know, only a handful of of cryptocurrencies are actually used as a currency. Um, The rest are more like stocks and shares. And this is the reason for a number of global regulators weighing in on the definition of a cryptocurrency and, and how they should be treated and regulated. Some forms um, of cryptocurrency um, that developed were really um, developed to to tackle problems in the space. So there were cryptocurrencies um, that that promised, you know, a a quicker transaction um, or a a cheaper transaction uh, than others. And and this is how they they developed and competed. Some were less anonymous than others. um, And this is what really gave rise to all of the competing cryptocurrencies um out there. Some also known as stable coins were developed. And this is, I think we're all quite quite well aware of the volatility associated with cryptocurrencies. Um, and this was actually um, a form of of virtual currency or cryptocurrency created to to really counteract that. So a stable coin is something that's pegged to a fiat currency or government regulated currency um, such as US dollar. Um, and this allows people to really come in and out of their crypto positions from exchanges or from tra- trading positions. Um, and this allows them to to really escape that volatility um, and, and kind of transition from a, a more stable environment back into their positions as they, as they would. Now over to Dan to touch on some of the major cryptocurrencies out there.
0: Sure thing. So uh, in the materials, uh, this is going to reference slide four. So cryptocurrency coins are digital tokens stored in digital wallets. Wallets are a concept uh, that we'll touch on in a little bit. So the cryptocurrency can be traded on the internet either for fiat currency, such as the US dollar, or for goods or services. Uh, Cryptocurrency does not take on a physical tangible form and it might not even take the form of a piece of code. There are more than 9,000 different types of cryptocurrency or otherwise known as digital currency trading today and there are new uh, types of uh, coins or tokens being created all the time. Some of the most popular are listed on slide 4 you We've got Bitcoin, which I'm pretty sure we're all familiar with, abbreviated by BTC. You've got Ether, also a large one, which is traded on the Ethereum uh, exchange. Ripple, uh, EOS, EOS uh, Bitcoin Cash, which is a little different than um, the Bitcoin. Litecoin, Chainlink, and uh, I couldn't resist including Elon Musk's favorite uh, Dogecoin. So as one example, Bitcoins are completely fungible and are not serialized or labeled. So it is impossible to state that any particular Bitcoin is the subject of any specific transaction at any specific time. Instead, a Bitcoin transaction is best understood as a unit of value being transferred from one wallet to another. Although they were referred to as cryptocurrencies, only a handful are actually used as currency. Others are tokens that are similar to a stock or a share in a company. Bitcoin, as uh, Emma was talking about, was the first to be created, and all others are referred to as altcoins or alternative. I'd like to drop a footnote here about uh, you know, a newer concept called NFTs. It's another type of crypto asset, and it's a non-fungible token. An NFT is a little bit different from say a Bitcoin or some of the other cryptocurrency coins that I just mentioned, because the NFT can store additional information and in some cases represent real world assets. Also, whereas a cryptocurrency coin is fungible, in other words, not unique or one of a kind, the NFT is unique. The easiest way to think about uh, the NFT is a one of a kind work of art. Something else that's been happening with these is creating like a sports highlight, such as a, you know, Michael Jordan dunk or something like that. So most NFTs are actually part of the Ethereum blockchain because that blockchain also supports NFTs along with either. But other blockchains can implement their own versions of NFTs, and some already have. Now I'm going to hand it back over to Ammo to touch on some of the underlying technology related to blockchain.
1: Thanks, Dan. So you've heard a little bit around the background um, of of crypto, where it came from, um, some of the competing and, and current coins out there. Um, as Dan mentioned, there's you know uh, 9,000 plus, so a significant amount um, of of cryptocurrencies in circulation at the moment. What I wanted to do is just transition into into page or slide five of your material, and now actually touch on the underlying technology associated with these cryptocurrencies. So what really I wanted to do is begin with uh, demystifying a common misconception. So decentralized ledger technology or DLT and blockchain are not the same thing per se. So DLT is a digital system for recording transactions of assets in a decentralized way. And this is the overarching technology. There are three main types of DLT out there, blockchain, DAG and Hashgraph. Um, And today we'll be exploring blockchain. Blockchain is a specific type or form of DLT, the first, simplest and currently the most commonly used. So let's break this down to its most simplest form. We have a record, a block and a chain. The record is a transaction holding information. Once the transaction is verified, it is added onto the block. A block can typically fit an average of 500 transactions or one megabyte of data. Although this is being reworked and remastered by a number of technologies out there to to make it more efficient. Once the block is full, it is added onto the chain. The chain goes back to the very first transaction of its type, in this case, Bitcoin. Each block has a unique header. The header contains metadata including timestamp for the block and the previous block's unique identifier. This adds the security layer, uh, as you cannot insert blocks into any place in the chain as it must be in their chronological order. So just to summarize and moving to, to slide six, when you want to transfer a Bitcoin, you send a request to the network. So if I wanted to send a Bitcoin to Dan, the transaction request would be broadcast to the network. The network would then validate the transaction. Once the transaction has been validated, it is added to to a block. And once that block becomes full of transactions and cannot physically fit anymore in terms of the, the 500 transactions that I discussed earlier, the block is then added and submitted to the chain. When you transact with crypto, you're not physically holding these coins themselves. It's merely signing over the ownership of the coin into the ledger which cannot be changed, immutable. It is the network of validators that are involved in something that you may have heard of called Bitcoin mining. The miners compete to verify the transactions to earn block rewards, and this is their incentive. It is comparable to a lottery, kind of. So the, the more computer power you have, the more lottery tickets and higher chances of winning this block reward is um, and this is the reason you may have seen a, a number of new d- news articles out there on large crypto farms, you know, uh, and also potentially um, their impact on the environment that's been socialized quite a lot on on, on media, social media recently. So just to clarify, each, type, each time a transaction pertaining to the relevant cryptocurrency takes place, a new private key for the relevant asset is generated and the public key will be changed by the addition of of new information to the cryptocurrency blockchain. The blockchain is a digital, decentralized and often public ledger. The recording of transactions on the ledger is governed by a consensus mechanism and algorithm. The consensus mechanism involves a series of computers solving mathematical problems to verify the transactions um, that have been submitted by the computers of people who want to trade between digital wallets. While the technical process varies, the basic principles stay the same. Transactions are confirmed in blocks, and to confirm the next block, the cryptography code uses data from the previous confirmed block creating a blockchain. The result is that a relevant record on the blockchain cannot be altered retrospectively without the consensual alteration of the subsequent blocks. So I'm just going to dive a little deeper into Bitcoin Um, as this is is where it gets quite interesting. So by design, there will only ever be 21 million bitcoins mined. Currently, we're just over around about the 18 million mark. Um, And the mining increases in difficulty over time by algorithmic design. So just to give you an idea, the last coin is predicted to be mined in the year 2140. Nothing that obviously we need to be concerned about. The miners who keep the network running are incentivized, as I touched on before, by block rewards, Um, and they started at at 25 Bitcoin per block when it was uh, first introduced, Um, and then halves every four years by design, and this process is referred to as the halving. So Bitcoin is actually deflationary by design. As the coins become harder to mine and therefore more scarce, This has been suggested as one of the key features contribution to the price increase we have seen over the years. Now, this is just Bitcoin, um, the first and one of the simplest, so imagine how all the others work. It's it's quite uh, an interesting area. I'm just going to hand back over to Dan now to discuss fiat entry and exit points.
0: Fiat entry and exit points, also colloquially known as on slash off ramps, are also exchanges. So it's a, it's a means for converting the fiat currency, jargon for government issued currency, into cryptocurrency, and also cryptocurrency back into fiat currency. There are more than 500 different exchanges which are located all over the world. Exchanges are one of the most common places for new users to get their first coin. A centralized cryptocurrency exchange is a platform where you can buy or sell digital assets. Here you have to trust a third party to monitor the transaction, and secure the assets on behalf of the buyer and the seller. The deals are not tracked on the blockchain. Such exchanges require you to submit your personal information for verification. A DEX, or a decentralized cryptocurrency exchange, is similar to a centralized one, except there's a difference. It doesn't have a third party on which you can rely. All the funds in this exchange remain stored on the blockchain. These platforms allow peer-to-peer, P2P trading, for which it uses assets, proxy tokens, or an escrow system, unlike the IOU-based system, a centralized crypto exchange uses. These centralized exchanges come with certain advantages. They offer more protection than centralized exchanges. A considerable risk of trading with a centralized crypto exchange is hackers. Hackers can attack the third party, which uses private keys to access all the funds of the users, and the users could lose their uh, deposits. On the other hand, centralized exchanges do come with the advantage in that they offer better infrastructure and better liquidity. The vast majority of the exchanges, both in the U.S. and the U.K., do require some sort of know-your-customer uh, or KYC-type verification in order for users to make deposits and withdrawals. So, just to drop a footnote, KYC is basically, uh, you know, a concept that came out of, uh, you know, the USA Patriot uh, Act and the Anti-Money Laundering Act as a way to track. Um, large and suspicious deposits based on certain algorithms to uh, frustrate the uh, funding of terrorism. It's useful for those trying to track uh, transactions on the blockchain uh, because we can get that information, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So some exchanges will allow users to remain anonymous. Regardless, neither transactions nor accounts are connected to real-world identities, Instead, they are connected to addresses which are randomly seeming chains of around 30 characters. Drop a footnote that was gonna get into later, that's a wallet. While it is usually possible to analyze the transaction flow, it's not necessarily possible to connect the real world identity of users with those addresses. That can frustrate tracking and tracing. In addition to regular exchanges, there are other on slash off ramps. These include over-the-counter markets, This is where users trade with each other directly at agreed upon prices that may not match the exchange rate exactly. There are multiple platforms that can offer this, but the -the over-the-counter realm is more for large purchases or sales, more commonly used by institutional buyers. Both exchanges and OTC services often have APIs that can be integrated into other applications, which can then make trading across multiple markets easier for advanced users. One last comment on ramp, is a cryptocurrency ATM. This is uh, where users can literally deposit cash and receive digital assets in return, uh, similar to the ATMs that we're all familiar with. These aren't available in all cities yet, and they're usually limited assets being offered. So going this route may or may not be uh, worth the trouble. So similarly, you can use uh, the exchanges and these other on slash off ramps that I've been talking about Uh, as a way to convert your cryptocurrency back into fiat currency, or even products and services. Most, but not all, exchanges and ATMs that act as on-rams are also going to offer that kind of feature. Uh, Exchanges may have limits on how much can be moved off-platform in a given day, week, or month, so it's important to check your account details if using this method. And as we'll get into later, there are also going to be some reporting requirements associated with... uh, you know, transactions over certain dollar amounts. One advantage of OTC trading is that it always goes both ways and it's designed for large transactions, but it may not be realistic for smaller investors. If users are looking to use their cryptocurrency to purchase, there are a growing number of options available because certain businesses are beginning to accept cryptocurrency, but this is still somewhat rare. Uh, we're all familiar with the fact that um, Tesla was originally going to allow Um, purchases with Bitcoin, but then retracted based upon environmental concerns. So a more practical solution might be using a service that allows a user to use digital assets to fund payment cards, but there can be transaction costs and fees associated with this. So if you take a look at slide eight, we've listed some of the more common exchanges have got Binance, which is the world's largest crypto exchange by market cap. It's led by the enigmatic uh, CZ Zhao, that's Z-H-A-O, offers more than 200 crypto trading pairs and has also developed its very own blockchain network called the Binance Smart Chain. That's based in Malta. Coinbase, which is one of the most popular exchanges, it's extremely beginner friendly, allows a user to buy their cryptocurrency with US dollars, headquartered in San Francisco. CoinJar, which was established in 2013, actually has uh, apps that you can uh, install on your phone through both uh, iOS and Android systems. It allows users to trade cryptocurrencies on the go. And uh, it's also got the the, uh, CoinJar and Exchange and OTC trading desks, which cater to professional traders as well as individuals and institutions looking to make larger transactions. CoinJar is headquartered in Melbourne. Next is Bittrex. It's a US based exchange that's been active since 2013, and it's got a good reputation for its uh, security. That's headquartered in Seattle. We've got Bitnex, which is run by professional algorithm traders, developers, and economists. It's one of the busiest exchanges you'll find in that space, but be careful because its founders are currently under indictment for violations of the Anti Money Laundering Act in the US versus Hayes case. Uh, another uh, Red flag is that it's headquartered in Seychelles. Next, you've got BlockGeeks, which is headquartered in Toronto. Kraken, Kraken with a K, headquartered in San Francisco. And Coin, that's uh, QU, which is headquartered in Tokyo. So we've talked, I've, I've alluded a little bit to the concept of wallets, but Ammo is going to educate now uh, more fulsomely on that.
1: Thanks, Dan. So just moving into slide nine um, and to discuss wallets. Um, a wallet is a program or a device that stores one's public address and private key. Um, it, it can also be used to receive and spend crypto. Um, so, so wallets are characterized by a public key, the address of the digital wallet, and a private key, a password for the digital wallet, allowing a user to make transactions. Um, the public key is, is really associated to an account number and helps to identify a destination for coins that are being sent to the wallet. Two people making a transaction with cryptocurrency where one is a seller and the other is a buyer will have to share their public keys with each other in order to complete the transaction. And then the buyer sends the required numbers of coins to the seller's address as payment and the blockchain verifies the validity of the transaction and confirms that the buyer or sender really has those funds to send. And once the payment has been delivered to the address, the seller or receiver can only access the funds through his or her private keys so it's imperative for private keys to be kept secure because if stolen the user's coins can be unlocked and accessed from the public address without authorization um so it's it's almost like your password to your online banking account with your with your banks so just to review public key address where everyone will send the user's money so it's almost like your account number um or in PayPal for instance, it would be your email address and then the private key gives users the right to access and send the user's coins. So the private key is like your password to your online banking account or password to your PayPal account. You need to keep that um, very secure because otherwise people will have access to your funds. Um, wallets can be held offline and also referred to as cold wallets or online hot wallets. So I'm just going to touch on them um, slightly now. Uh, so a hot wallet. Uh, are actively connected to the internet. Um, so while it's easy to to transact using these wallets, they are vulnerable to hacks. Um, exchange wallets, mobile wallets, and desktop wallets are examples of hot wallets. Um, with a hot wallet, all the functions required to complete a transaction are made from a single online device. Um, the wallet generates and stores private keys, digitally signed transactions using private keys, and broadcasts the signed transactions to the network. The problem is that once the signed transactions have been broadcast online, an attacker crawling the networks may become privy to the private key, which then is used to sign in and and obviously hack funds. Now moving into cold wallets, So cold storage resolves this issue really by signing the transaction with the private keys in an offline environment. Any transaction initiated online is temporarily transferred to an offline wallet kept on a device such as a USB, a CD, hard drive, even paper or or an offline computer, where it's then digitally signed before it is transmitted to the network. Because the private key does not come into contact with several connected online devices during the signing process, even an online hacker comes across the transaction, the hacker would not be able to access access. The private key used for it. So this adds that that additional layer of security. Uh, but the trade-off is that the process of transferring to and from cold storage wallet devices um, is somewhat burdensome and also um, obviously time-consuming. Um, the most basic form of cold storage is actually a paper wallet. A paper wallet is simply a document that has the public and private keys written on it. The document is printed um, from the Bitcoin paper wallet tool online with an offline printer. Um, and then the paper wallet or, or document usually has a QR code embedded uh, on it, so you can easily kind of um, it can easily be scanned and, and signed to to make a transaction. Um, the drawback is that if if the paper is lost, rendering uh, illegible or or destroyed, um, the user uh, will never be able to access um, their address uh, or funds again another form of cold storage um is a hardware wallet or referred to as a hardware wallet which is used uh which uses sorry an an offline device or smart card to generate private keys offline the ledger usb for example is a wallet um or a hardware wallet that uses a smart card to secure private keys the device kind of looks and functions like a usb traditional usb stick um and uh, a computer, um, and Chrome-based app um, are required to store the private keys offline. The user must store this USB device and smart card in a safe place, as any damage or loss could terminate access to the user's coin, coins. So- well, finally, there are offline software wallets, which are quite similar to hardware wallets, but are more complex um, and, and obviously um, not really useful for for less technical users an offline software wallet splits a wallet into two accessible platforms an offline wallet which contains the private keys and an online wallet which has a public keys, uh, which has the public key stored the online wallet generates new unsigned transactions and sends the address of the user to the receiver or sender on the other end of the transaction the unsigned transaction is moved to the offline wallet and signed with the private key The signed transaction is then moved back to the online wallet, which broadcasts it to the network. And because the offline wallet never gets connected to the Internet, it's stored stored private keys remain secure. And as you can foresee, that process is quite long winded, which is why typically the majority of people use uh, either uh, a hot wallet or a cold wallet or a combination of both. And that's something that, that is used quite widely in the industry. Now, just handing over to to Dan to just discuss some techniques that are used by fraudsters.
0: Thanks a lot, Ammo. So, most thefts, uh, you know, involve a user's wallet being compromised by a hack. There are other uh, criminal schemes out there, which we'll touch upon in a bit. But the techniques are used to disguise, or bury, or obfuscate the, the chain, making tracking more difficult. The culprits often attempt to launder the proceeds through these means, go ahead and take a look at slide 11. So this is talking about uh, using a cryptocurrency mixer or blender. This is essentially an intermediary service that will take the coins from many sources and distribute the coins back out in different amounts to one or several accounts controlled by the thieves. So think of taking in a lump sum and then dispersing it in smaller sums to different uh, recipients, all controlled by the thieves. The source for the funds will differ from the initial deposit from the user. Funds are deposited into a mixing pool combining other users' deposits in the mixing service. For example, if a criminal were to steal five bitcoins, give them to a blender, the blender may then output two bitcoins to one account controlled by the thief, and two bitcoins to a second account, and one bitcoin to a third. By breaking up the amounts and distributing them to different wallets with varied sources and recipients, it becomes more difficult to determine where the uh, coins that were stolen have gone. Tumblers is another concept. That is a way of mixing clean coins with tainted coins. Both uh, the mixing, blending, and tumbling uh, are methods to disguise the transaction paths and make it harder to follow the trail. Tumblers and blenders are in a very real sense, tailor-made and designed to engage in money laundering. There's another technique called chain hopping, which is also discussed on slide 11. Uh, the ownership of cryptocurrency is known to anybody with visibility into that blockchain. We know that. However, users can exchange one cryptocurrency for another, making tracing the value more difficult. For example, a thief can exchange X stolen bitcoins for Y Ether coins, with the stolen value now being present in the Ethereum blockchain, not the Bitcoin blockchain. An example of how a third party would do this is by depositing Bitcoin on a cryptocurrency exchange, trading that Bitcoin for ether, and then withdrawing the ether to a wallet controlled by the thief. Just analyzing the ledger of Bitcoin without getting information from the exchange itself, an investigator will only be able to follow the blockchain trail to that exchange and would not know what cryptocurrency trades or withdrawals have taken place within or between the thief's exchange wallets. This chain hopping technique is also often used to make it more difficult and time consuming to ascertain where the value of stolen cryptocurrency has been transmitted. These may also use decentralized exchanges or decentralized platform, finance platforms, you know, also called DeFi, which are built on top of smart contract and rich blockchains. Unlike retail or person-to-person exchanges, they don't handle funds at all. Instead, the decentralized exchanges use networks and protocols to programmatically transfer funds between users' wallets for direct wallet-to-wallet trading. These decentralized exchanges don't have the regulation or KYC protocols that I discussed before, and so are ideal for swapping stolen cryptocurrency for clean cryptocurrency. Other practices include buying tokens at initial coin offerings, abbreviated as ICOs, that don't have the KYC requirements or using dirty cryptocurrency to fund mining of cryptocurrency by buying hardware to mine the coins, thereby generating clean coins from compensation for the mining and uh, secreting the uh, tainted coins. So I'm going to turn now uh, your attention to slide 12, and we're going to talk a little about who the bad guys are. So the first category is hackers. In 2020, over $520 million worth of cryptocurrency was stolen from services and individuals just through hacking. Hackers can be individuals, groups of individuals loosely connected, or actually highly connected and integrated large groups. One example of these is the Lazarus Group, which is a North Korea-aligned cyber criminal syndicate. Lazarus Group is responsible for hacking numerous cryptocurrency exchanges over the last few years, and managed to seal a whopping $275 million worth of cryptocurrency from KuCoin, making it the biggest cryptocurrency theft of 2020. Overlapping a little bit is the next category, organized crime. Other organized crime entities have also discovered the potential of cryptocurrencies. And what that potential is, is not just the ability to obfuscate the transactions but actually engaged in crimes targeted to the cryptocurrency itself. So drug cartels and human traffickers have started to use cryptocurrencies to launder the proceeds of their operations because of the tracing issues. Regulators, for example, in Mexico are dealing with this. Registered cryptocurrency exchanges are required by law to report transfers above a certain amount, which is something that I talked about earlier. This, however, leads to the emergence of unregistered and unregulated exchanges, which I discussed above as well. Payment processors. Payment processors allow businesses to accept transactions of cryptocurrencies as payment from customers in exchange for goods and services. The transaction often goes through the payment gateway at a fixed exchange rate and automatically converts to fiat currency, so the merchant can avoid the volatility of the cryptocurrency markets. But, some cryptocurrency payment gateways do not automatically transfer the cryptocurrency to fiat currency, allowing the merchant to hold the digital coins if they prefer. Cryptocurrency payment gateways tend to offer lower fees than traditional credit card payment systems. Last, the actors actual watch are also the exchanges. We talked about the different types of exchanges above, you know, the retail, the peer-to-peer exchanges. Retail exchanges are the most widely used type of exchange. And the most important thing is they have the KYC protocols. These exchanges are going to be one of the main targets when we're talking about tracing and tracking because of the ability to use subpoena powers, injunctions, and other uh, tools in the legal field to either stop, freeze, or get information about transactions. Peer-to-peer exchanges facilitate trades between individuals. Users create public listings of how much cryptocurrency they'd like to buy or sell, and other users can respond and negotiate terms with them directly. These often do not have the KYC practices though, and are relying on users to conduct research on who they are trading with. I've got to take a pause here because in order to comply with New York regulations, attorneys looking for CLE credit in New York will need to be able to provide a code. The code is not intended for the West Legal Ed Center audience. I will read this code twice and only twice and cannot repeat it or email it to you. So please make note of it. The New York state code number is S like Sam, A like Apple, three one one three six dash 60321. Again, New York code number is S like Sam, A like Apple, 31136 60321. One, three, six, six, now, Amma's going to dive into digital forensics to discuss techniques for tracing and tracking.
1: Thanks, Dan. So Typically, this involves a combination of counsel, whether it be internal or external or both, forensic accountants, digital forensics, cybercrime, and blockchain specialist investigators. It's typically multi-jurisdictional given the global nature of crypto, um, and and the investigator must combine kind of blockchain forensics and specialities in that space together with more traditional digital forensic investigative work. Um, And in some ways, blockchain analysis is faster than traditional asset recovery. Um, In the latter, one serves subpoenas to a bank, then learns who was at the bank, then serves a subpoena to the next link in the chain, which takes another month to come back and so forth. Um, And in blockchain, uh, that can all be seen in real time. Um, But the investigator must identify and associate the wallet address in question to an actual organization. Uh, and to do so, um, ultimately de-anonymize the transactions. So effectively, um, that's kind of wrapping it up and, and kind of the, the traditional process. But what I'm going to do is just dive into a few more details about how we can go about tracing and and, and, um, and associating and recovering funds. So. A, an approach used by a number of my, my colleagues and, and peers um, is is the third-party subpoena approach. Um, so the investigator should still look at, at bank and credit card statements to see uh, if and when any cryptocurrency was purchased uh, at, at an exchange or through any other means, as Dan discussed, uh, the fiat entry and exit points. Um, a debtor may declare that it engaged in cryptocurrency transactions on its annual tax return, um, as the IRS now requires such uh, disclosure. Um, one can also blind subpoena exchanges, so that uh, you know uh, those that are located in jurisdictions that have increased requirements for a, for account holders' uh, disclosure can be targeted. The the KYC details and uh, uh, that, that Dan discussed is is something that that is stored by these exchanges. But once the investigator finds the entry point and has identified it, the investigator can then trace from the wallet to wallet until it hits a known person or another exchange. If one is able to find the last exchange in a transaction, its documents may have the entire blockchain and fiat transfer chain, which will give us the info we need to trace all of, all of the, the transactions in one shot. And that's the ideal scenario, really. Blockchain forensics is an involve, uh, evolving science uh, that requires multifaceted approach. Tracing wallet transactions is more like tracing cash movement than like tracing traditional electronic payment systems. And the most reliable measure of cryptocurrency activity may only be observed funding of the wallet and any transfers out of the wallet to a traditional currency account. Companies have developed software to de-anonymise these digital wallets and effectively show who is behind certain wallets and transactions, such as Cypher Trace, Elliptic and and Chain Analysis, to name a few. They do this by scraping the dark web and social media platforms to build intelligence on thousands of wallet addresses and create a blacklist of known protagonist wallet addresses. They also use a complex algorithm to associate a cluster of wallet addresses with an organisation which is then tagged in a database. These tools really allow me and and investigators alike to, to really see the relationship between cryptocurrency wallets and actually real world organizations, allowing us to then provide that intelligence onto counsel who can then use this to build their legal strategy. The investigator also relies upon acquired experience, knowledge and methodologies of fraudsters, you know uh, and insights into crypto into the cryptocurrency world to build on these tools and interpret the data so as discussed uh, by dan there's a number of different mechanisms and and, and kind of schemas used by the fraudsters. and and this is what we use with our experience of forensics to to kind of really understand how best to investigate um investigators may not be able to immediately identify the parties involved in in non-exchange transactions, but they can spot and study patterns in the movement of of cryptocurrency to profile and de-anonymise participants. They must join together any details uncovered and and this intelligence um, on information such as wallets, addresses, keys, and link transactions to the debtor or fraudsters. Other potential moves are to use the threat of law enforcement, judicial process, and and pressuring persons at the end by a chain by ongoing after their assets asset, sorry, their assets they had a role in the fraud. So effectively, um if you were to um be able to use some kind of legal mechanism to say, right, you know, we know that you've been involved in, in something that's a little bit misleading or a little bit dodgy, then then that's a mechanism used as well. Um just really um, to to kind of step back a little bit and discuss kind of how we typically go through a, a digital forensic approach. This is something that's complementary and something that I just touched on around combining not only crypto forensics, but also your traditional digital forensics to obtain information and in intel and evidential artifacts on protagonists. This is a complementary approach to the above, um, and really you need to obtain those forces devices um, and anything really that's connected to the internet, such as cell phones, laptops, tablets, and, and desktops. Um, and really what we do here is we capture the, the, um, the hard drives or the memory within these devices, and we use the information stored within to then um, understand more about the activity of the individual. So for example, if we were to understand the internet history um, and analyze the internet history, we might be able to understand what cryptocurrency exchanges individuals were were navigating to. And then that may lead us onto some accounts that they hold within, within their exchanges, some maybe passwords and, and, and wallet details that are associated and installed onto the computer as well. Um, so Bitcoin artifacts reside on the suspect's hard drive and can be recovered using robust forensic tools, such as NCASE, for example. Internet Evidence Finder is another one, which kind of permits the investigator to to view just the Bitcoin artifacts on the device. Um, And that's typically found within the wallet.dat file. Um, And the investigator can examine the chain state subdirectory to view all currently unspent transactions, for example. These transactions... With corresponding addresses could then be compared to the address recovered in the wallet.dat file, as well as those found on the blockchain and any other intel um, found in the investigation to really join the dots. Um, I'm now just going to give you an overview of kind of the the, the main stages within um, an investigation or, or or something that pertains to to investigating the, the tracing of cryptocurrency. So. The the, the five main basic stages are identification, preservation, collection, analysis and and reporting at the end. So identification really is is the first stage and this identifies potential sources of relevant evidence and and information, um, as well as key custodians and the location of data. Um, And what we mean by that is understanding kind of the issue, understanding what happened and understanding where potentially you may find evidence whether it's someone's phone, whether it's on uh, on a server of a network, for example. We then move into preservation. So once we understand the, diff- the different sources and the case and what's actually transpired or a bit of background, we need to put into, into um, the process steps to preserve any of this evidence. And what that really means is putting in actions to ensure that artifacts that we are interested in are not altered, deleted, or overwritten. We then move into the collection phase. So this is where we actually go in. And now that we've preserved the data, we can now start pulling it, taking a forensic copy in a defensible manner, documenting all this this, um, information, and also documenting how the evidence was acquired, what techniques we used. We then move into the analysis, um, which is an in-depth systematic search of evidence relating to the incident being investigated. And the outputs of examination are data artifacts, as I discussed about the wallet.dat file um, found and collected. And then we can use this as Intel to provide to counsel um, to really build that, that strategy. And that's where we move into the reporting phase. So we report on the evidential artifacts. We provide the Intel. This isn't a process where we provide that just at the end. These are quite fluid in terms of investigation, so once we we come across wallet addresses any Intel, we would immediately pass that on that information on to relevant parties um, I think a big part of the the investigation process is collaboration as I mentioned forensic accountants work alongside counsel work alongside um, the digital forensic experts as well, and the collaboration there is really key, and that that really um, takes us into kind of where we want to be at. Just moving into slide 16 some of the forensic developments and products out there so i've kind of touched already on some of the tools and the de-anonymization of the ledgers this is the this is really the 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 breakthrough for us in terms of forensic developments this is where really we have been able to to now associate organizations based on this address clustering that i mentioned um, with wallet addresses and i'm talking in on mass um, and this has really allowed us to really start now thinking about, okay, well, we've associated this wallet address with this organization. Now council can use legal strategy to to approach um, in terms of freezing orders, in terms of however they would want to um, strategize on, on kind of attempting to recover funds. Um, so I'm now just going to um, pass back over to, to Dan, um, who's going to um, – discuss some of the types of remedies and recoveries.
0: Thanks a lot, Ammo. So what can we do? What kind of tools do we have? We've got several, and I'll list some of them out, and then I'll walk through some cases where those tools were actually uh, implemented. So we can initiate John Doe slash, or Jane Doe slash persons unknown suits if we don't actually know the identities of the uh, bad guys. Uh, we can seek turnover orders to exchanges to discover that, or obtain the contents of wallets. We can serve garnishment writs to exchanges to obtain the contents of wallets. We can subpoena exchanges to get the information that the exchanges have to maintain regarding the owners uh, by virtue of that KYC documentation they've got to keep. We can uh, attempt to execute and levy to capture cold wallets such as flash drives or paper wallets since they're tangible. We can seek uh, orders compelling individuals to act with regard to the assets, such as an order directing the individual to turn over the password under penalty of contempt. That contempt uh, can be enforced with sanctions you know, all the way up to a civil arrest order. We can seek freezing orders or injunctions to prevent further dissipation or dispersion of the cryptocurrency while the theft and fraud case is litigated. Uh, If you're in a common law jurisdiction, you can even seek what's called a Spartacus order to compel anonymous persons to uh, disclose their identities. So take a look at um, slide 16. This is the Ion Science versus Persons Unknown case. And this is an example of a freezing order against unnamed, uh, unidentified individuals. So just a little bit of background. Uh, fraudsters persuaded applicants to invest in Ether and Dimecoin and represented increases in profits to them that were used to lure them into further investing in two ICO schemes for new coins. But the supposed profits from the investments, surprise, surprise, were never returned. The applicants sought to secure the assets which they believed to have been misappropriated and to preserve the assets of the fraudsters who operated through a dummy entity called Neo Capital. So, this case was initiated in the UK, but Neo Capital, uh, if it existed, was a Swiss entity. So, the applicants applied ex parte for a proprietary injunction to preserve the assets which the claimant has a proprietary claim to, and a Mareva injunction, which is a worldwide freezing uh, order of assets of an entity based upon risk of dissipation. The applicants also applied for an ancillary disclosure order as to those connected to the entity Neo Capital a banker's trust order, which is an order to compel a third party to disclose details of financial activities, which might ordinarily be protected by confidentiality, and a grant of request for permission to serve out of the jurisdiction and by alternative means. All of the defendants here were non-UK entities. You had Neo Capital, you had Binance, you had payment ventures, associated with the Kraken crypto exchange. So this decision was the first court allowing bankers trust orders to be served on exchanges located out of the UK. And the court also granted the injunction, even though those enjoined were unknown or there were no specific assets to point to either. Let's take a look at another case. This is slide 17. This is AA versus persons unknown. There's a a type of uh, scheme involving crypto where it's not actually a theft of crypto. These are more like ransom cases where hackers essentially hold the um, victim's computer systems, operating systems hostage. So the hackers uh, penetrated the victim's firewall and installed malware that encrypted the victim's computer systems. Um, The uh, victim's insurer hired an incident response company to negotiate a ransom, which eventually was uh, 1.2 million in Bitcoin My mistake, actually the uh, ransom, the initial demand was 1.2 million in Bitcoin. The ransom was reduced to uh, about 950000 US dollars in Bitcoin. So uh, the first defendant was the hacker, unknown. The second defendant was persons unknown who controlled 96 Bitcoin that were held in a Bitfinex Bitcoin address. The applicant requested, excuse me, Norwich Pharmacal Orders and Bankers Trust Orders which required the third and fourth defendants to provide specific information in relation to the cryptocurrency account owned or controlled by the second defendant, a proprietary injunction as to the Bitcoin held at the account of the fourth defendant, an injunction for the third and fourth defendants to provide information about the first and second, and for the first and second defendants to identify themselves. Unfortunately, the applicant had to abandon the Norwich Pharmacore and Bankers trust orders because of jurisdiction service issues. But the court granted the injunction request because the Bitcoin was held at the account of the second defendant at Bitfinex. The hearing was allowed to be held in private as well to prevent revenge attacks on the claimant and the applicant, copycat attacks, and to avoid frustration of the purpose of the application because once the bad guys would know that the uh, victim was pursuing them, they would seek to divert or secrete the uh, Bitcoin further. The court also allowed the, uh, the order to be served out of the jurisdiction and by alternative means. Next, if you turn your attention to slide 18, we've got the Samara versus Dan case. Uh, here, the plaintiff transacted with the defendant to sell Bitcoin for commission. The plaintiff was given access to the defendant's bank account to allow the plaintiff to transfer sales proceeds to the plaintiff's to the account in Germany. The plaintiff transferred 450 Bitcoin to the defendant's wallet at GateCoin. But later, the plaintiff discovered that the defendant had somehow canceled the plaintiff's access to the account. The plaintiff went ahead and contacted GateCoin to block the defendant from accessing the GateCoin wallet. Gatecoin CEO subsequently informed the plaintiff that only 40 Bitcoin remained in the wallet, but would need a legal basis to block the account for an extended period of time. The plaintiff applied for an injunction to freeze the remaining Bitcoin in the defendant's gatecoin wallet. But the plaintiff had a problem. There was only 275 of the coin left. The plaintiff had to uh, explain that he had lost the key and so was unable to access the wallet. The plaintiff requested a freezing injunction on the assets, and the court granted it because the plaintiff had a good, arguable case on his claim. The defendant had assets within the jurisdiction which could be frozen, and there was a real risk that such assets could be dissipated. I'm going to skip ahead because we have uh, only a few minutes left, so jump ahead to um, slide 20, and we'll talk about the copy track case. And this is an example of concrete examples of successes in blockchain and digital wallet tracing. So in 2018, CopyTrack obtained summary judgment in the British Columbia Supreme Court, where that court ordered that over $400,000 of Canadian cryptocurrency could be traced and recovered from, and I quote, whatsoever hands that either tokens may currently be held. The either tokens have been sent to the defendant in error and they were not returned when demand was made. It wasn't disputed that the tokens were the property of copy track. So on a summary judgment basis, the court concluded that the defendant had no proprietary claim to the tokens and ordered that the plaintiffs were entitled to trace and recover the tokens received by the defendant. Last, we can talk about the uh, Duga Limited, uh, locally known as the Cubits case. That's slide 21. Here, three Chinese traders allegedly purchased Bitcoin through Cubits via Pay Secure Online. A payment processor based in Malta. But PaySec never remitted the funds to Cubits in an alleged scam. Cubits filed a lawsuit in Malta to force PaySec to reimburse the monies. The reimbursement claim included funds from three Chinese accounts and others. Cubits then filed for an administration in the United Kingdom. Then, Dugas foreign representatives then obtained recognition of the foreign insolvency proceeding in the Northern District of California and at Chapter 15, based upon the contents of the wallets on the Coinbase exchange owned by a Paysec principal, and the contents of wallets on the Bitress exchange. In January, 2021, based upon the tracing analysis, using some of the techniques that Anler described, linking the contents of these wallets owned by Paysec to Duga, the foreign representative obtained a turnover order, ordering turnover of the contents of those wallets. We can wrap up with some quick additional final information Go
1: ahead, Emma. Thanks, Dan. Um, so this is a bit of a tongue twister, but the Eliminate Barriers to Innovation Act of 2021. Um, it passed the House on on April the 20th um, and is now in the Senate. Focus on the relationship between the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodity Future Trading Commission. It focuses its focus, sorry, is to create a joint working group of non-government employees to advise both commissions and ultimately come up with a report and recommendation as to how the two should address digital asset markets. Influenced by struggles of the SEC and CFTC in defining which cryptocurrencies are securities and which are commodities, um, something which I touched on at the start. It's something that is a bit of an issue and, and something that will be addressed probably in the coming months two years. Back to you, Dan, for some um, IRS rules.
0: Sure thing. So earlier I mentioned that we've got, to, or users have to be mindful of the amounts of the transactions. So the uh, US Treasury Department announced in May that it's going to require any transfer worth $10,000 or more to be reported to the IRS. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I, being based in Miami, am now uh, going to be attending the uh, Bitcoin 21 conference, which Miami is holding. This is going to be the largest uh, cryptocurrency conference in the world. And uh, it's uh, our mayor here is actually a very strong advocate and uh, is even going so far as to advocate for the payment of city employees in uh, cryptocurrency. So back to, to Ammo to touch on some trends and future predictions.
1: Thanks, Dan. So just to wrap up, really, um looking looking um forward i think some of you may have been aware or have heard of the the term defi or decentralized finance and this is a creation of a a traditional financial instrument within decentralized architecture outside of banks and governments and really aimed at looking at disrupting the fs sector um there's a There are a number of different forms of DeFi, including lending platforms, um, and they are really growing exponentially and something that I predict will continue to grow for for the foreseeable years to come. Just to give you an idea of the scale uh, over the last 12 months, the amount locked up in these decentralized finance products um, in terms of liquidity locked um, has risen from 800 million to 37 billion U.S., and that's just in the last 12 months um and and so really it shows the the exponential growth in that area and then really I just wanted to touch on um some of the central banks really um globally um central bank digital currencies or cbdcs as they're referred to um are being researched heavily um that they're, they're in the news quite a lot um a lot of um central banks globally are researching into them and i really think it is a matter of time before they do start rolling out some form of cbdc now i don't think that's going to be cryptocurrency related it is just going to be a digital version of your local fiat currency but it does show the benefits and the movement into the digital world um, a bit further and i think really from kind of the railway mania of the 1840s to the dot-com bubble in the 1990s to the crypto boom, I guess, in, in, in NFTs and, and bubbles as like, um, you know, bubbles are essential for technology revolutions. And I think that is something that, that we are seeing um, maybe, maybe less so in, in some of the, the weird and wonderful crypto um, inventions out there, but, but maybe um, more so in the underlying technology that we discussed. Uh, regulation and law in this area will strengthen. Um, I think we've discussed that there are, um you know uh case law is being established there are a number of initiatives that we've touched on as well um above that do attest to that and this is something that we foresee um you know uh, growing in in kind of maturity moving forward um just really just to finish off um if you are really interested in finding out more about anything you've heard on this podcast um, you want a, a bit of a deeper dive into NFTs and DeFi that I've just touched on. Um, or if you're just building out a, a crypto asset recovery or investigations team yourselves, uh, please don't hesitate to contact us via email or LinkedIn. Um, you have our, our names, so you'll easily be able to find our email addresses and, and postcode, uh, sorry, not postcodes, um, uh, LinkedIn addresses. Um, and I'd really just like to thank everyone for listening today.
0: Yes, I'd also like to thank everyone for giving us the time. It's been a real pleasure.